Let me tell you a story, podcast number 75. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age never mind it is a how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine or a lace of your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Oh, that hot season is here again. And you find yourself lugging around a case of water, ready to open another bottle and sip, sip, sip. Then you realize that you're needing hydration because you're carrying all that weighty liquid. Well, now you can hike across the desert or go to the mountaintop without that extra burden of body or mind. Because now, thanks to our sponsor, Lightwater, we bring you dehydrated water. Just carry the lightweight powder, and when you want a gulp of that cool, clear drink, just add water. It's as simple as that. Order from us today and take a powder. Hi, this is Becky. Summer weather arrived in Boise today all 97 degrees of it. But as my mother would say, not to worry. We're dropping 20 degrees tomorrow and we'll be at a comfortable 77. I trust you're enjoying this crazy time of year when spring slips in and out of summer. While you linger in the shade or by a fan, we've got some good listening for you. Steve will read an excerpt from a John Wagner book. This one is titled The DNA Murders. And I'll read a Danny Clark short story titled the cell phone. But first, here's Steve with Treasure Island. I'll read a little bit of the end of 25 and then go into chapter 26. I was greatly elated with my new command and pleased with the bright, sunshiny weather and these different prospects of the coast. I had now plenty of water and good things to eat, and my conscience, which had smitten me hard for my desertion, was quieted by the great conquest I had made. I should, I think, have had nothing left me to desire but for the eyes of the coxswain as they followed me derisively about the deck, and the odd smile that appeared continually on his face. It was a smile that had in it something both of pain and weakness, a haggard old man's smile. But there was, besides that, a grain of derision, a shadow of treachery in his expression as he craftily watched and watched and watched me at my work. Chapter 26 is called Israel Hands. The wind, serving us to a desire, now hauled into the west. We could run so much the easier from the northeast corner of the island to the mouth of the north inlet, only as we had no power to anchor and dared not beach her till the tide had flowed a good deal farther. Time hung on our hands. The coxswain told me how to lay the ship too. After a good many trials, I succeeded, and we both sat in silence over another meal. Cap'n, said he at length with a same uncomfortable smile, here's my old shipmate, O'Brien. Suppose you was to heave him overboard. I ain't particular, as a rule, and I don't take no blame for settling his hash, but I don't reckon him ornamental now, do you? I'm not strong enough, and I don't like the job, and there he lies for me, said I. This here's an unlucky ship, this Hispaniola, Jim. 
he went on, blinking. There's a power of men been killed in this Hispaniola. A sight of poor seamen, dead and gone, since you and me took ship to Bristol. I never seen sich dirty luck, not I. There was this here O'Brien now. He's dead, ain't he? Well, now, I'm no scholar, and you're a lad as can read and figure. And to put it straight, do you take it as a dead man is dead for good? Or do he come alive again? You can kill the body, Mr. Hands, but not the spirit. You must know that already, I replied. O'Brien there is in another world, and maybe watching us. Ah, says he. Well, that's unfortunate. Appears the killing parties was a waste of time. Howsomever, spirits don't reckon for much by what I've seen. I'll chance it with the spirits, Jim. And now you've spoke up free, and I'll take it kind if you'd step down into that there cabin and get me a, well, well, a shiver my timbers. I can't hit the name on it. Well, you get me a bottle of wine, Jim. This here brandy's too strong for my head. Now the coxswain's hesitation seemed to be unnatural. And as for the notion of his preferring wine to brandy, I entirely disbelieved it. The whole story was a pretext. He wanted me to leave the deck. So much was plain. But with what purpose, I could in no way imagine. His eyes never met mine. They kept wandering to and fro, up and down, now with a look to the sky, now with a flitting glance upon the dead O'Brien. All the time he kept smiling and putting his tongue out in the most guilty, embarrassed manner, so that a child could have told that he was bent on some deception. I was prompt with my answer, however, for I saw where my advantage lay, and that with a fellow so densely stupid I could easily conceal my suspicions to the end. "'Some wine?' said I. "'Far better. Will you have white or red?' "'Well, I reckon it's about the blessed same to me, shipmate,' he replied. "'So it's strong, and plenty of it. What's the odds?' "'All right,' I answered. "'I'll bring you port, Mr. Hands. "'But I'll have to dig for it.' "'With that, I scuttled down the companion with all the noise I could, "'slipped off my shoes, ran quietly along the sparred gallery, "'mounted the forecastle ladder, and popped my head out of the fore companion.' I knew he would not expect to see me there, yet I took every precaution possible, and certainly the worst of my suspicions proved too true. He had risen from his position to his hands and knees, and though his leg obviously hurt him pretty sharply when he moved, for I could hear him stifle a groan, yet it was at a good, rattling rate that he trailed himself across the deck. In half a minute he had reached the port scuppers and picked out of a coil of rope a long knife, or rather a short dirk, discolored to the hilt with blood. He looked upon it for a moment, thrusting forth his underjaw, tried the point upon his hand, and then, hastily concealing it in the bosom of his jacket, trundled back again into his old place against the bulwark. This was all that I required to know. Israel could move about. He was now armed, and if he had been at so much trouble to get rid of me, it was plain that I was meant to be the victim. What he would do afterwards, whether he would try to crawl right across the island from North Inlet to the camp among the swamps, or whether he would fire Long Tom, trusting that his own comrades might come first to help him, was, of course, more than I could say. 
Yet I felt sure that I could trust him in one point, since in that our interests jumped together. And that was in the disposition of the schooner. We both desired to have her stranded safe enough and in a sheltered place, and so that, when the time came, she could be got off again with as little labor and danger as might be. And until that was done, I considered that my life would certainly be spared. While I was thus turning the business over in my mind, I had not been idle with my body. I had stolen back to the cabin, slipped once more into my shoes, and laid my hand at random on a bottle of wine. And now, with this for an excuse, I made my reappearance on the deck. Hands lay as I had left him, all fallen together in a bundle, and with his eyelids lowered as though he were too weak to bear the light. He looked up, however, at my coming, knocked the neck off the bottle like a man who had done the same thing often, and took a good swig with his favorite toast of, Here's luck! And then he lay quiet for a little, and then, pulling out a stick of tobacco, begged me to cut him a quid. Cut me a junk of that, says he, for I haven't no knife and hardly strength enough, so be as I had. Ah, Jim, Jim, I reckon I've missed stays. Cut me a quid, as a likely be the last, lad, for I'm for my long home, and no mistake. Well, said I, I'll cut you some tobacco, but if I was you and thought myself so badly, I would go to my prayers like a Christian man. Why, said he, now you tell me why. Why, I cried, you were asking me just now about the dead. You've broken your trust. You've lived in sin and lies and blood. There's a man you killed lying at your feet this moment. And you ask me why? For mercy's sake, Mr. Hands, that's why. I spoke with a little heat, thinking of the bloody dirk he had hidden in his pocket and designed, in his ill thoughts, to end me with. He, for his part, took a great draught of the wine, and spoke with the most unusual solemnity. For thirty years, he said, I've sailed the seas, and seen good and bad, better and worse, fair weather and foul, provisions running out, knives going, and what not. Well, now I tell you, I never seen good come a goodness yet. Him as strikes first is my fancy. Dead men don't bite, them's my views. Amen, so be it. And now you look here, he added, suddenly changing his tone. We've had about enough of this foolery. The tide's made good enough by now. You just take my orders, Captain Hawkins, and we'll sail slap in and be done with it. All told, we had scarce two miles to run, but the navigation was delicate. The entrance to this northern anchorage was not only narrow and shoal, but lay east and west, so that the schooner must be nicely handled to be got in. I think I was a good, prompt subaltern, and I am very sure that Hans was an excellent pilot, for we went about and about and dodged in, shaving the banks with a certainty and a neatness that were a pleasure to behold. Scarcely had we passed the heads before the land closed around us. The shores of North Inlet were as thickly wooded as those of the southern anchorage, but the space was longer and narrower, and more like, when in truth it was, the estuary of a river. Right before us, at the southern end, we saw the wreck of a ship in the last stages of dilapidation. It had been a great vessel of three masts, but had lain so long exposed to the injuries of the weather that it was hung about with great webs of dripping seaweed, and on the deck of it shore bushes had taken root, and now flourished thick with flowers. 
It was a sad sight, but it showed us that the anchorage was calm. Now, said Hans, look there. There's a pet bit for to beach a ship in. Fine flat sand, never a cat's paw. Trees all around of it, and flowers a-blowin' like a guarding on the old ship. And once beached, I inquired, how shall we get her off again? Why so, he replied, you take a line ashore there on the other side at low water. Take a turn about one of them big pines, bring it back, take a turn around the capstan, and lie to for the tide. Come high water, all hands take a pull upon the line, and off she comes as sweet as nature. And now, boy, you stand by. We're near the bit now, and she's too much way on her. Starboard a little, so steady, starboard, larboard a little, steady, steady, so he issued his commands, which I breathlessly obeyed, till, all of a sudden, he cried, Now, my hearty, luff! And I pulled the helm hard up, and the Hispaniola swung round rapidly, and ran stern on for the low-wooded shore. The excitement of these last maneuvers had somewhat interfered with the watch I had kept hitherto, sharply enough, upon the coxswain. Even then I was still so much interested, waiting for the ship to touch that I had quite forgot the peril that hung over my head, and stood craning over the starboard bulwarks and watching the ripples spreading wide before the bows. I might have fallen without a struggle for my life, had not a sudden disquietude seized upon me and made me turn my head. Perhaps I had heard a creak, or seen his shadow moving with the tail of my eye. Perhaps it was an instinct like a cat's, but sure enough, when I looked round, there was hands already halfway towards me with the dirk in his right hand. We must both have cried out aloud when our eyes met, but while mine was the shrill cry of terror, his was a roar of fury like a charging bull's. At the same instant he threw himself forward, and I leaped sideways towards the bows. As I did so, I let go of the tiller, which sprang sharp to leeward, and I think this saved my life, for it struck hands across the chest, and stopped him, for the moment, dead. Before he could recover, I was safe out of the corner where he had me trapped, with all the deck to dodge about. Just forward of the mainmast, I stopped, drew a pistol from my pocket, took a cool aim, though he had already turned and was once more coming directly after me, and drew the trigger. The hammer fell, but there followed neither flash nor sound. The priming was useless with seawater. I cursed myself for my neglect. Why had not I, long before, reprimed and reloaded my own weapons? Then I should not have been as now, a mere fleeing sheep before his butcher. Wounded as he was, it was wonderful how fast he could move, his grizzled hair tumbling over his face, and his face itself as red as a red ensign, with his haste and fury. I had no time to try my other pistol, nor indeed much inclination, for I was sure it would be useless. One thing I saw plainly. I must not simply retreat before him, or he would speedily hold me boxed into the bows, as a moment since he had so nearly boxed me in the stern. Once so caught, and nine or ten inches of the blood-stained dirk would be my last experience on this side of eternity. I placed my palms against the mainmast, which was of a goodish bigness, and waited every nerve upon the stretch. Seeing that I meant to dodge, he also paused, and a moment or two passed in feints on his part, 
and corresponding movements upon mine. It was such a game as I had often played at home about the rocks of Black Hill Cove, but never before, you may be sure, was such a wildly beating heart as now. Still, as I say, it was a boy's game, and I thought I could hold my own at it against an elderly seaman with a wounded thigh. Indeed, my courage had begun to rise so high that I allowed myself a few darting thoughts on what would be the end of the affair. And while I saw certainly that I could spin it out for long, I saw no hope of any ultimate escape. Well, while things stood thus, suddenly the Hispaniola struck, staggered, ground for an instant in the sand, and then, swift as a blow, canted over to the port side, till the deck stood at an angle of forty-five degrees, and about a puncheon of water splashed into the scupper holes, and lay in a pool between the deck and the bulwark. We were both of us capsized in a second, and both of us rolled almost together into the scuppers, the dead red cap, with his arms still spread out, tumbling stiffly after us. So near were we, indeed, that my head came against the coxswain's foot with a crack that made my teeth rattle. Blow and all, I was the first afoot again, for hands had got involved with the dead body. The sudden canting of the ship had made the deck no place for running on. I had to find some new way of escape, and that upon the instant, for my foe was almost touching me. Quick as thought, I sprang into the mizzen shrouds, rattled up hand over hand, and did not draw a breath till I was seated on the cross trees. I had been saved by being prompt. The dirk had struck not half a foot below me as I pursued my upward flight, and there stood Israel Hands with his mouth open and his face upturned to mine, a perfect statue of surprise and disappointment. Now that I had a moment to myself, I lost no time in changing the priming of my pistol, and then having one ready for service, and to make assurance doubly sure, I proceeded to draw the load of the other, and recharge it afresh from the beginning. My new employment struck hands all of a heap. He began to see the dice going against him, and after an obvious hesitation, he also hauled himself heavily into the shrouds, and with a dirk in his teeth, began slowly and painfully to mount. It cost him no end of time and groans to haul his wounded leg behind him, and I had quietly finished my arrangements before he was much more than a third of the way up. Then, with a pistol in either hand, I addressed him. One more step, Mr. Hands, said I, and I'll blow your brains out. Dead men don't bite, you know, I added with a chuckle. He stopped instantly. I could see by the working of his face that he was trying to think and the process was so slow and laborious that, in my newfound security, I laughed aloud. At last, with a swallow or two, he spoke, his face still wearing the same expression of extreme perplexity. In order to speak, he had to take the dagger from his mouth, but in all else, he remained unmoved. Jim, says he, I reckon we're fouled, you and me, and we'll have to sign articles. I'd have had you but for their, their lurch. But I don't have no luck, not I, and I reckon I'll have to strike, which comes hard, you see, for a master mariner to a ship's younger like you, Jim. I was drinking in his words and smiling away, as conceited as a cock upon a wall, when, all in a breath, back went his right hand over his shoulder. Something sang like an arrow through the air. I felt a blow and then a sharp pang, and there I was pinned by the shoulder to the mast. In the horrid pain and surprise of the moment, 
I scarce can say it was by my own volition, and I am sure it was without a conscious aim. Both my pistols went off, and both escaped out of my hands. They did not fall alone. With a choked cry, the coxswain loosed his grasp upon the shrouds and plunged headfirst into the water. Today I'm reading Chapter 22 from Winds of Wyoming. Her weight on her good leg, Kate used the patio table and a chair. Oh, I know I was going to do that. Her weight on her good leg, Kate used the patio table and a chair back to push herself to a standing position. She'd sat for more than an hour, searching for internships in Denver. Her advisor in Pennsylvania would have come up with a multitude of options in a snap of a finger. But Kate wasn't ready to tell the university she'd blown it. They'd been over backward to help her get a degree while she was in prison. Would she lose the diploma if she became incarcerated again and unable to fulfill the internship requirements? She heard the front gate clink. Then male voices. Her heart plunged. She scanned the woods that surrounded Dimple's house. If only her leg wasn't broken. She groaned and plopped into the wheelchair. Okay, God. I'll trust your promise that in all things, even an arrest for something I did not do, you will work for good. She gripped the wheels and rolled the path toward the front of the house. When she cleared the corner, she saw two sheriff's deputies standing before the purple door, shoulders squared, elbows out, hands hovering near their guns. She stopped. This was a first. The one time in her life she was innocent and she was turning herself in. Had she lost her mind? She hoped it had something to do with a change of character, not just her broken leg. Looking for me, officers? The deputies whirled, hands on their holsters. Kate smiled at their startled expressions and lifted her hands. I won't cause you any trouble. Neither man looked convinced. But gentlemen, the voice came from the other side of the house, I will cause you plenty of grief. The deputies spun the other direction. Dimple, who held a basket of plastic flowers, glared at the man. Whoa, boys, remember me? I live here. You shouldn't sneak up on us. The deputy looked from Dimple to Kate and back again. You could get hurt. She straightened to her full five feet three inches. If you'd been paying attention, Bernie, you'd have seen me coming. Now, tell me why you and... She stared at the other officer's name tag. Why, you and Deputy Ramirez are honoring us with this surprise visit. She set the basket on the ground and moved to stand next to Kate. We have two duties today, two warrants. Deputy Bernard held up papers. The first is a search warrant that allows us to search your house. The other is a warrant for Miss Nielsen's arrest for theft of funds at the Whispering Pines Guest Ranch. Kate felt Dimple flinch, even though her friend stood several inches away. She reached out to take her hand. I should have warned you, Bernard sneered. Should have been smart enough to wear gloves. Dimple stared at the men until they began to fidget. Finally, she spoke. You are welcome to search my home. I have nothing to hide, neither does Kate. Kate blinked, wishing she felt as confident as Dimple sounded. But as for arresting this young woman, Dimple indicated the cast on Kate's leg. You can see she's wheelchair-bound, and you know she just had surgery. Incarcerating her right now would be cruel and unusual punishment. 
If you take her to jail, I will immediately call my lawyer, the ACLU, the governor, who, by the way, happens to be a personal friend. I'll call the newspapers, all the newspapers and radio and television stations from here to Denver and Salt Lake, and anyone else I can think of. She cleared her throat. Maybe I'll even learn how to bloom on the Internet. Both men's foreheads wrinkled. Kate suppressed a smile. I think she means blog. Yes, blob, that's it. Dimple placed her free hand on her waist. I will blob the entire world. Deputy Ramirez smirked. We get the point, Bernard turned to his partner. Let's talk it over in the car. He aimed a finger at Kate. Remain where you are. As they walked away, Kate squeezed Dimple's hand. Thanks for defending me, Dimple, but they can't change their orders. I'm sorry I sucked you into this mess. God brought you here for a reason, sweetie. I plan to stand by your statue no matter where this leads. Oh, Dimple, that was all she could say. Nobody had ever offered to stand by her statue, with or without pigeons. If you want, Dimple said, I'll pray for you right now. Please do that. She was definitely in need of prayer. Dimple set the basket on the ground and took Kate's hand. Raising both of their hands above their heads, she began to pray. Master of the universe, amazing creator of every single thing on this puny planet and beyond, lover and redeemer of my dear sweet friend Kate Nielsen, you know all about everything that's going on down here, but I'll tell you anyway, we are desperate, oh, so desperate for a miracle. Kate is in no condition to go to jail. Besides, you and I both know she's innocent. Kate blinked her eyes open. How did Dimple know that? Car door slammed. Kate watched the men walk up the path. Officer Ramirez carried a black case. Dimple paused, still holding their hands high. You not only love Kate, Lord, you love these officers who are just doing their job. The men took off their hats and bowed their heads. May your spirit descend on my humble home while they search it. The timber of Dimple's voice became fuller, deeper, the crackle nearly a rumble. Fill their hearts with courage to do the right thing, to be men of integrity, knowing you see and judge their every movement, their every action. She paused. In your most worthy, holy, awesome name, I pray. Amen. Amused by Dimple's God is watching you tactic, Kate grinned and whispered, Amen. The officers shot each other side glances as they replaced their caps. Dimple lowered their arms. What's the verdict, gentlemen? Kate winced. Verdict? Not a word she enjoyed hearing. Bernard glowered at Dimple. The sheriff said house arrest is permissible until the case goes to trial. Kate expelled the breath she'd held captive. Dimple folded her arms. And what exactly does that mean? Deputy Ramirez cleared his throat. House arrest means we'll limit where she goes and how often she leaves this place. That is, if you're willing to keep her here, Miss Forbes. Plus, he knelt on the ground, opened the case he carried, and pulled out a black strap. We'll attach this monitor to her ankle to track. Dimple interrupted. Stop right there, young man. Kate can stay here as long as she needs, and we'll comply with the house arrest rules. But you are not, I repeat, not putting that thing on her leg. She just suffered a severe injury and won't be going anywhere unless I drive her. I'll take her to church, into town, for doctor's visits, and shopping. If anything else comes up, I'll call the department to get persimmons. Kate tapped her arm. Permission. Permission. 
Bernard huffed. Those are not our orders. Dimple scowled at the men. They're my orders. Sheriff Gilmer, who's also a personal friend, can call me for clarification. The men looked at each other. Kate felt invisible, even though she was the subject of the discussion. She also felt dizzy. If you don't mind, I need to lie down. The men jumped to attention and helped her to a nearby bench. Dimple brought a pillow from the house. She placed it under Kate's head before turning to the men. Do you plan to do the searching or the arresting first? Bernard answered. How about you ladies relax out here while we go through the house? When we're finished, we'll read Miss Nielsen her rights and do the paperwork. They started toward the door, but Dimple raised her hand. One more thing. Not a hint of Kate's arrest will be leaked to the public. Bernard frowned. The newspaper always calls us... Not one word, Bernie, not even to the Duncans, or I will consider my privacy violated, which could become embarrassing for the sheriff's department and risky for your paycheck. Bernard swatted at a wasp that landed on his cheek. Dimple lifted an eyebrow. You obviously prefer I discuss this matter with your boss, which I will do while you nose around my home. He grunted and looked at Ramirez. Let's get busy. Kate pressed her lips together to hide her amusement. Evidently, the former schoolteacher hadn't lost her touch. Dimple sat in the wheelchair. Can it bring you anything? This can't be easy for you. Kate watched clouds float overhead. I feel surprisingly relaxed, even though I'm petrified I might go back. She stopped. Being arrested again didn't mean she had to tell Dimple or anyone else she'd already done time. She grinned at Dimple. Because you told me to smoke that Bible verse this morning, I just keep telling myself and God that he promised to work everything out for good. She clasped her hands behind her head. I don't have a clue how he can bring good out of being arrested and charged with a crime I didn't commit. But what choice do I have other than to rely on him to take care of me? Christians are not puppets, Dimple said. You have a choice. Just remember, no matter what happens, God is delighted with you. Thank you for reminding me. Kate looked at Dimple. Can I ask you something? Of course. Are you really friends with the sheriff and the governor? Or were you bluffing? You think I would lie, especially to officers of the law? No, but after you've lived in Wyoming a while, you'll understand. Kate looked away. She wouldn't be in Wyoming long unless she ended up in the state pen. Wyoming is a big state land-wise, Dimple said, one of the largest in the country. Yet we have the smallest population of all the states, around 500,000 residents. Oh, Kate said, Metro Pittsburgh has almost five times that many people. Even though we're spread out in Wyoming, it's easy to have friends and relatives in every corner of our square state. One such friend, the governor's mother, Sylvia, was my roommate when we attended the University of Wyoming a thousand moons ago. We're still close friends. And Sheriff Gilmer, let's just say he knows who his supporters are in Carbon County. You're amazing, Dimple. I feel privileged to have a friend in high places. Dimple slowly rose to her feet. Kate cringed at the sound of popping joints. The only friend in high places that counts, Dimple straightened, is God. Even though he's above all and beyond all, he's a friend who sticks closer than a brother because he lives within us. He's a friend who walks before us, beside us, and behind us. A friend who promised to never leave us or turn his back on us. Don't forget that. Kate watched her caretaker hobble into her home. House arrest was not something she looked forward to, 
but she had much to learn about life and about God. Dimple would be an excellent teacher. And maybe, just maybe, Mike would visit them again. But he'd been so angry when he left. Would he understand if she called and tried to explain things to him? Could she do it without revealing too much? read from chapter one of the DNA murders by John Clark Wagner. Chapter one, Old Indian Bones. Daniel Burke, chief detective of the town of Stanton, Ohio, rarely drank to excess anymore, not since Vietnam. But he enjoyed a cool one occasionally, like after a hard day at City Hall, or when he went fishing, or when he played poker. Thursday night was when he and a few of the boys got together in the back room of Schiller's Bar and Grill down on River Road for a friendly game, since Friday was generally a slow day. The game usually started around 8 and broke up around 11.30, during which time Burke typically had two or three beers. But on that particular Thursday night, it was the day the kids found the old decrepit skull in Beeler Woods, Burke was on a rare winning streak, and every time he yawned, stretched, and started to rise from the table with his parting comments on the tip of his tongue, such as, Well, boys, it's past my bedtime. The other guys would whine and complain and demand a chance to get their money back. Naturally, in the heat and passion of such an exciting, protracted game, they had all stayed longer and drunk more than was good for them. Of course, Daniel's wife, Marge, and their two kids, Sam and Linda, were asleep when Daniel finally got home. He very quietly slipped inside the house and into bed. It was difficult for him to get out of bed the following morning, being hungover and sleep-deprived, and just about all he could do to get through breakfast without giving himself away. He knew he wasn't a pleasant fellow when he was hungover. So he smiled weakly at everyone at the table and mumbled a few pleasantries and hid behind the newspaper as much as possible. Then all he wanted to do was get to the office and fix himself a seltzer for his headache and to head off a sour stomach. After that, he wanted to put his feet up on the corner of his desk and be left alone. He always arrived at the police department, an annex of City Hall, no later than 745 which allowed him enough time to stop by the break room for a cup of coffee, nod hello to whomever he might encounter there, and get to his desk before starting time. On this particular morning in April, 1983, when he arrived at the break room, instead of his usual cup of coffee, he plopped two white quarter-sized seltzer tablets into a cup of cold water and listened to them fizz as he walked on to his office. As usual, his subordinate, Detective Elmo Dempsey, was already there, sitting at his desk across the office he shared with Burke, 
with his feet up on the edge of his desk, reading the newspaper and sipping his coffee. Chief Newman hired Dempsey three years earlier and put him under Burke's supervision. Burke had not been consulted in the hiring and did not interview the candidate. In fact, nobody even asked him his opinion. He was not sure there had been other applicants. The whole thing had gotten under his skin. Obviously, Dempsey was somebody's nephew or cousin or had worked in someone's election campaign. Dempsey, a rather tall, slender rail of a man, with brown eyes and hair, which he wore short in the military fashion, had only recently returned to Stanton from six years in the Air Force. When Burke wasn't feeling well, he tended to get a little petulant and spiteful. This morning it irritated him to an irrational extent that Dempsey was already there, as he was every morning, in fact. Burke had always suspected that Dempsey came to work early so he could snoop through all the inboxes, read the mail and memos on everyone's desks, and get all the gossip from the patrol officers and secretaries. Invariably, by the time Burke got there, Dempsey would have completed his reconnaissance and would be right where he was now, his feet up, reading the newspaper and sipping his coffee. Besides all this early morning aggravation and the debilitating effect his hangover was having on him, it irritated Burke further that Dempsey's coffee cup was a stainless steel thing, unbreakable, whose bottom flared out to twice the width of a real cup. Burke was not sure why that bothered him so much. He went straight to his desk without even acknowledging Dempsey, who had his nose in the newspaper anyway. Indeed, Burke didn't even look over his way as he came in the door. He sat down with his back to him, pretending he didn't know he was there, and turned his chair around to the window that looked out over the city hall parking lot and a little municipal park beyond. He drank his seltzer and began mentally counting off the seconds. One, two, three. At the mental count of nine, Dempsey said, Morning, boss. Oh, morning, Elmo, he said. I didn't notice you there. You're here early again today. Finding anything interesting in the paper? I'll let you have it when I'm finished with it, boss. That's all right. I glanced at it at the breakfast this morning. Anything happening around here? Chief was by looking for you. Burke perked up. Already? What did he want? Didn't say. He left your note. It's there in your inbox. Burke felt a tinge of hatred for Dempsey. He knew that Dempsey already knew the contents of the note, and he felt certain he had caught a glimpse of Dempsey smirking just now. He snatched up the note from atop the other papers in his inbox. It read, Daniel, please retrieve contraband Indian artifacts at 734 Elm Street. Burke recognized the address as that of Ed and Sarah Moore. He knew that Chief of Police, Newman's contraband Indian artifact, was a human skull, since his wife, Marge, played bridge with Sarah Moore and friends at the country club on Thursday afternoons, and Marge had mentioned the skull at breakfast, describing it as an old decrepit thing. In fact, Burke felt confident there wasn't a housewife within 20 miles of the center of town who didn't know about the skull. He was not overly excited about it. It was a common thing to find old bones in that part of Ohio where Indian mound builder cultures had lived for thousands of years before the arrival of the white man. Burial mounds were an important tourist attraction, and there was a little museum off the town square which was popular. He chuckled at the chief, calling it a contraband Indian artifact. 
With Dempsey momentarily forgotten, Burke fumbled through all the papers on his desk and then checked his basket for anything else he might have missed. There was only the usual inter-office busy work, which was no surprise to him. In fact, Burke mused, he would more than welcome a surprise. When a crime of any significance was committed, everybody in town knew who did it, unless it was some bum come in from the highway to knock off a service station or a minute market. Everybody knew where the cut houses were, who was selling the dope, who was buying it, where to get after-hours booze, and who was romancing whom among the better classes. It was unusual, though, now that he thought about it, how things had been so slow all winter, crime-wise. The two-man detective squad, indeed, the whole police department, had spent more effort on traffic accidents caused by lousy winter. Most of the serious crime was in the larger cities, downstream at Cincinnati, Covington, and Newport, and on upriver in the West Virginia towns like Huntington, Parkersburg, and Wheeling. There were times when Burke envied big city detectives whatever excitement they had. In a typical week, Stanton usually had a few DUI, a brawl or two at a beer joint down on River Road, maybe a little petty thievery, a little dope, that sort of thing. Even an occasional uncomplicated killing over a woman or a card game, usually, or just drunken meanness. And certainly nobody was complaining about the slow pace of crime in this little town. Really, except him, the chief detective of the two-man detective squad, who was about, finally, to go out of his mind with boredom and frustration. How much can a man take? I just once like to have me something to sink my teeth into, he thought. He swung his simulated black leather chair around to the window once more. Right below his window were the assigned parking spaces of the mayor and his staff. The mayor's secretary, May Ellen Posey, pulled in just then in her red convertible. Not seeming to be in any big hurry about it, she languidly exited the car, dropping her left leg outside, then her right, revealing a goodly portion of thigh as she did so. Uh-uh, said Burke under his breath. As she walked toward the building entrance, she glanced up at Burke at the window and flashed him a smile, causing him to flinch involuntarily. He suspected that she knew he was watching her all along. He absentmindedly took a last little swig of seltzer and screwed up his mouth. It was the sour, gritty dregs of the antacid tablet. He glanced at his subordinate across the office, who seemed to be oblivious to him. The moron, he thought, sitting there with his feet up, reading the financial section. He didn't like having Dempsey in the same office with him. It was just something else which kept Burke on the point of despair most of the time. How was he expected to maintain any kind of discipline and respect for the authority of his position when he had to sit there all day long with this subordinate watching his every move for crying out loud? Burke swung his chair around to his desk, straightened up, and cleared his throat. I'm really negative this morning he thought. I've got to get with it. He leaned back in his chair, took several deep breaths, and said, Well, Elmo, this looks like an assignment for a crack detective. What? Elmo said absently, without bothering to lower the paper. Contraband Indian artifact, Burke said. What's that, boss? Elmo asked, his feet still comfortably elevated on the desk, not bothering to lower the newspaper to respond to his supervisor. Contraband Indian artifact, Burke repeated. Huh? 
contraband Indian artifact? What does that mean? This note the chief left me. Kids found a skull in the woods over by Beeler Street. That's what he called it, contraband Indian artifact. I gotta go retrieve it. Dempsey peered, grinning, over the top of the paper. He was apparently studying the stock market reports. Want me to handle it, boss? No, no, I'll take care of it, Elmo. You stand by the radio here in case I need backup. Elmo smirked and mumbled to himself as Burke went out the door. Everybody is a comedian. This is a short story by Danny Clark, titled The Cell Phone. How was your vacation, Alex asked. Did you bring back pictures? Tom O'Carroll, who'd been out of the office for more than a week, gave his co-worker a half-hearted smile. We enjoyed ourselves in the time away, but found it less relaxing than we'd hoped. I'd give a lot to fly to Europe and spend a week away from the ordinary, Alex said. Tom hesitated. The long lines at the airport and time in the air take a lot out of a person. And then there's upended expectations as well as inability to communicate well. This had been Tom and Heidi's first trip abroad, and with it had come preconceived notions of what they'd find, but nothing had prepared them for what they experienced. He looked at the stack of unopened correspondence on his usually tidy desk. Obviously, no one had done his job while he was gone. It was up to him to catch up on a week's worth of work while doing the current work also. It now seemed like he'd never left the office. At five minutes until five, he called Heidi. I'll be late. Still catching up. Don't wait dinner. Okay, she sounded disappointed. I'll see you when you get here. Alex stood above him, his jacket over his arm. No vacation for the vacationer. No rest for the wicked. See you in the morning. As his co-workers filed out the door, Tom dialed home. Hi, hun. Just thought I'd call and offer to take you to dinner if I'm not too late in asking. Thanks, Heidi said. I appreciate the offer, but I just finished a sandwich. Maybe another time. I'll try to get home before you go to bed. Tom sighed. They left me a real mess and some problems that can't wait until tomorrow. At a quarter to eight, he called it a day and grabbed a cheeseburger and a shake on the way home. The next morning, over breakfast, Heidi said, I suppose you didn't have time to call the cell phone company yesterday. Do you want me to call them today? I'll handle it, Tom answered, surprised by his sharp, insistent tone. I mean, it is something that would be better done in person. He tried to sound less strident. I'll get to it this week. It was not just the mystery surrounding the pictures on his cell phone, but more the subsequent, almost mechanical, hollow-sounding, accompanying messages that had sent shivers down their spines. Tom vividly remembered taking a picture of the ancient Leap Castle in Ireland with a lush green backdrop and a cloudless blue sky. But when viewed later, the photos showed the faint outlines of a castle in the background in sepia tones and a young woman in the foreground in a white lace dress stained red with blood. Her eyes were black and lifeless, and her hand was a blood-stained dagger. In the message, a woman's tormented voice asked, Why did you kill me? Yet no numbers showed as to where the call originated. 
Back at work, Alex smiled as he passed Tom's desk. You look like you need another vacation. Did you work late? A little, Tom admitted. I hope to get on top of it today, if no new fires bust out. Claire walked up. Jones called early this morning before we opened. Didn't sound too cheerful. He's East Coast, Tom said. Guess he thinks the whole country is on his schedule. Thanks, Claire. I'll call him. He picked up the phone. Good morning, Mr. Jones. I left a message. I got it, Jones interrupted. Didn't you know the time? We go home at five. Yes, sir. I apologize, but I knew the problem was urgent and it was only six here. I was hoping maybe someone was still at your office. Jones ignored him. If I can't get this thing worked out, I'm going to have to look for someone else who will. Tom tried to stay patient, knowing the account was a large one and that his company needed the revenue. One possibility that may make the time issue less critical would be for us to use our cell phones rather than trying to work within the framework of an office schedule, he suggested. I don't like to do business at home, Jones said. Nor do I, Tom said. However, sometimes business dictates where and when we do what we do to achieve success. He felt good about his answer and forced himself to remain quiet and let Jones initiate further conversation. After a few seconds, Jones gave him his secret cell phone number and admonished him to use it only in the case of emergency. Tom did likewise, thanked him and disconnected. Then he dialed the next number on his list. At a quarter after five, he crossed off the last name on the list and stood. Walking to the parking lot, he dialed his wife. I'm on my way. Are you up for dinner out? Why did you kill me? The sorrowful cry issued clearly from the speaker. He nearly dropped his phone. Not funny. He didn't appreciate his wife pranking him. No further sound came from the phone before he disconnected. When he arrived home, he burst angrily into the house, only to find his wife sitting at their dining table, white-faced and trembling. Her cell phone lay in front of her. Before he could speak, she rose and wrapped her arms around him. "'You heard it, too?' he asked. "'And saw it?' her voice trembled. "'Saw it?' It flashed across the screen just as the voice spoke. She seemed to be looking right through me. They sat without speaking for a long time. Finally, Tom suggested they eat. "'I'm not hungry,' Heidi said. But when they sat down in the restaurant, they both were ravenous. "'Are we crazy?' Heidi asked, looking Tom directly in the eyes. "'Could we both be crazy?' After dinner, they walked into to Verizon and asked for the manager. "'How can I help you?' he asked. "'We'd like to have the photo storage and voice messaging checked on both of our phones,' Tom said. "'Is there a problem?' "'Please just see if they're functioning properly. Then I'll tell you our concerns.' The man took a few pictures, checked the results, and turned to the voicemail. I see nothing wrong. Both cell phones are functioning fine. Perhaps it's something you may have done inadvertently. Tom snatched the phone from the man and went to the gallery page. When he clicked on the castle picture, his mouth dropped. The castle sat there, perfectly framed on a grassy knoll, with a blue sky and billowing white clouds above it, with no sign of the apparition. He showed the screen to his wife. Her eyes widened. Tom checked messages on both phones, but the screen showed no saved messages. We're sorry to have bothered you. Tom grabbed Heidi's arm and hustled her toward the door. Neither spoke as they drove home. Neither dared, for they feared for their sanity. 
in the privacy of their living room, Heidi said, I heard and I saw it. I don't think I'm crazy. I do not believe I was dreaming. Tom nodded and picked up his phone. Time to get serious about this. Go get your laptop, Heidi, and Google paranormal. She clicked on paranormal sightings and was quickly rewarded with several dozen sites, one of which was Leap Castle. A Wikipedia article caught their attention. Scrolling through the article, which indicated numerous people had been imprisoned and executed in the castle and continued to haunt it, they came to the Red Lady. Heidi read the story out loud. The Red Lady has been seen carrying a dagger in her hand and raising it in a menacing manner, as if wanting to stab someone. Story goes that the Red Lady is the ghost of a woman who was captured and raped by the O'Carrolls. She became pregnant as a result, but the baby was killed by the O'Carrolls, and in despair she killed herself. That was her, Tom said, the Red Lady, I'm sure of it. Heidi nodded. But if so, what became of her on our phones? All I know, Tom said, is she was there, and now she's not. What do we do, Heidi asked. What can we do? Tom shrugged. Nothing we can do but wait and see if she comes back. After a restless night's sleep, both Tom and Heidi had difficulty beginning their day. But following lots of hot coffee and fresh scones, they sat down at the computer and retraced their steps from the previous day. They opened each of the sites and read them carefully, making notes as they went. The college, Tom exclaimed. I'll bet they have paranormal study groups at the university. Let's drive over and see what we can find out. We might not have any luck on a Saturday, but we can try. They found Professor Lumpkin, a portly, bespeckled man, in his office. He'd stopped by to pick up something, but said he'd be glad to answer their questions. I'd like to preface our conversation by clarifying what I personally consider paranormal studies. He smiled. Paranormal is a catch-all term used for those things which cannot be currently scientifically explained. Tom said, so as science pushes forward the boundaries of understanding, fewer and fewer things are considered paranormal? That is correct, the professor said. Science is moving so fast now that sometimes questions are answered before they are asked. He laughed at his own joke before continuing. So what brings you here today? We recently returned from a short vacation to Europe where we encountered some unnerving phenomena. Tom explained the whole series of events, including the most recent. Do you recognize this picture? he asked, holding his cell phone toward the man with the castle picture visible. Why, certainly. That's Leak Castle in Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. Are you from the O'Carroll clan? Tom looked at Heidi. I don't know. I've never studied my heritage and have no personal knowledge of my ancestry. Lumpkin made a tent of his fingers. How did you choose the places of interest that you visited in Europe? Heidi answered. I researched online before we left and gathered brochures and visited with the locals while we were there. Looking back now, it seems orderly, but while we were there, we just chose destinations of opportunity. Is it possible that your choices were not random at all? Lumpkin asked. What do you mean? Tom asked. Are you suggesting something or someone was guiding us? The professor brought up Leap Castle history on his computer and turned the screen toward his guests. Do you notice anything? The name O'Carroll seemed to jump off the page. I find it interesting that your name is associated with those who raped the Red Lady and killed her bastard child, causing her to then kill herself, and that the incarnation on your phone camera was also of a young woman covered in blood. 
But God's word says, Heidi began, Lumpkin cut her off. I am a Christian, and I believe in God and his word, he said. However, the Bible says my ways are higher than your ways and doesn't explain what that means. Science will never fully explain everything associated with death and the existence of spirits, either good or bad. We are aware that Satan uses forces to achieve his goals and that God uses other forces for his purposes. Tom rose from his seat. What then was the Red Lady's purpose? Professor Lumpkin held out a hand. You are possibly the last of the O'Carroll line. Maybe, just maybe, the Red Lady was making a final plea to convince the O'Carrolls that she'd been wronged. And Danny's story is going to take us out this time. As always, thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.